Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the blessing of gathering together on, on this day that You've given us to grow uh, in the knowledge of Christ. And uh, I pray that we would be faithful, that we would, uh, that we would learn much, that we would not just learn facts, but that we would learn wisdom, that we would learn how to apply by looking at the past and, and seeing how You have worked mightily in so many ways. And well, we pray that You might be pleased to do that again. We do not know the future, uh, but we look back at men and women who, who cried out uh, that You would work, and uh, You chose at times to do just that. We're thankful for our country. Uh, we're thankful for the freedoms that we have had, that this freedom to prepare for the next country, uh, that we can come today even in freedom and focus on eternity today. Uh, we're thankful for that. I just thank you for this class and those that are desirous to just grow. And I just pray that it would be of great benefit as we work through the next few months, uh, as we look back at the great works of Christ in our country, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to read from Mark 6 and Mark 6, 30 through 34. And we'll get started. I'm reading... From the extra special version, the ESV. Here we go. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that he had, that all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, "Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves." Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. That text will be used as one of the most controversial messages in American history. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, not controversial by because of the preacher who preached it, but because of the audience he was targeting it towards. Uh, it's going to, and it's going to really set up for us some things today that, that are, that are going to be helpful to understand as we move forward into this next part of American history. But we want to start with a man that we just are going to mention today, get more into his life next week, uh, a man that Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the greatest preacher this country has ever produced. His name is Samuel Davies. He lived a short life, uh, only into his 30s, uh, but what he did was quite miraculous in many ways, and, and uh, so we want to make sure that we don't pass him by, because he is going to, he, like Whitfield, will be instrumental in, in a variety of ways. Uh, not, only God, not only will God bring revival through his preaching, but he will be instrumental in, in American independence. He will be instrumental in building up the church, bringing free, religious freedom to Virginia. Uh, Virginia, as we're going to see, has, does not have religious freedom. Uh, and so uh, he's just a very, very instrumental guy. He'll become the fourth president at Princeton. And so we're, it's a guy, he's, he's a man that we don't want to pass by and forget. Uh, and actually what Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, added to that quote was that you don't have never even heard of uh, Americans haven't even heard of Samuel Davies, to our shame. Uh, many Americans. Hopefully we all have by now, uh, because I've just mentioned him. So let's keep going. 
A one-eyed preacher marched into Hanover County, Virginia in the summer of 1743. He had been sent out as an evangelist from the Newcastle Presbytery, which was a New Light Presbytery. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He preached the first sermon there on July 6th from Luke 13.3. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He would spend the next three to four days preaching to the residents there. The impact would cause one observer to declare his time sitting under this preaching as these glorious days of the Son of Man. The minister's, came, the minister's name, whose appearance had been marred by smallpox, was William Robinson. Robinson's preaching has such an impact on the souls of Hanover that they wanted to show their gratitude by giving him a considerable sum of money. He refused, but they snuck it into his saddlebag. Sometime later, as he's traveling, he found it, and he turned around, went back to Hanover, and he told them this. He said, I see you are resolved. I shall have your money. I shall take it. But as I told you before, I do not need it. I have enough, nor will I appropriate it to my own use. But there is a young man of my acquaintance of promising talents and piety, who is now studying the view to the ministry. But his circumstances are embarrassing. He has not funds to support and carry him on without much difficulty. This money will relieve him from his pecuniary difficulties. Pecuniary difficulties. I will take charge of it and appropriate it to his use. And as soon as he is licensed, we will send him to visit you. It may be that you may, now, you may now, by your liberality, be educating a minister for yourselves. William Robinson's dying wish was that this young man would return to preach to the residents of Hanover County, Virginia. Well, who was this young man? Well, it was Samuel Davies, of course. Uh, Samuel Davies, at this point, is training for the ministry. And we're not going to talk a lot about his life today. That comes next week. But we want to set up the time in which he lived, the, the things that will impact his ministry, what he is going to be dealing with, and those that impacted him. Because there's lots of controversy going on in the colonies and, uh, at this time and that we need to work through so we kind of understand what's taking place uh, as we move through this. So just as an aside, William Robinson had come from London and after, quote, falling into the big sins of big city life, decided to come to America as a teacher. And while in America, he is converted. And this is his conversion testimony, which I think is on your notes. Everybody get notes, by the way? You should, everybody should have notes. I printed off like 500. I didn't know I kept pressing print, and there should be plenty. So, so you can take two if you want says he was riding at a late hour one evening when the moon and the stars shone with unusual brightness and when everything around him was calculated to excite reflection. While he was meditating upon the beauty and grandeur of the scene which the firmament, firmament presented and was saying to himself, how transcendently glorious must be the author of all this beauty and grandeur. The thought struck him with the suddenness and force of lightning. But what do I know of this God? Have I ever sought His favor or made Him my friend? This happy impression 
which proved by its permanence and effects to have come from the best of all sources, never left him until he took refuge in Christ as the hope and life of his soul. I think there's many, there are many testimonies of men, women who have reflected on creation, and the Lord used that in a very impactful way in their life. Now, we have to have special revelation to actually come to Christ. Uh, so you either had to have that beforehand, before you were meditating on creation, or at some level you have to be brought to what God's Word says about salvation. However, who in the Bible often meditated on creation and it had great impact in, in his life? Okay, so David would be one. That's right. Let's see here. That's right. So you have David. Remember Psalm 8 would be one of those psalms where he's, he's thinking about creation. He's thinking about all, just the, the vastness of it. Causes him to think how great God is. And then it causes him to think how small he is, right? I mean, we're really small. Uh, and when you start thinking about that, you start to realize, wow, God, this God, uh, we know the God of the Bible, is great. He's big. Uh, he is high and lofty, and I am really small. Um, and so uh, it's something that, that meditating on creation often does. Who else told us to meditate on creation? We could learn much from meditating on creation. Who? Isaiah. Isaiah. Okay. So how, what way? Okay. Yeah. Kind of bring some elements of creation into that, right? Good. Who else? Job. Job. Okay. Got Job. Did the same thing. Who else? Jesus. Jesus. (laughs) Remember Jesus? He uh, often... Often, Jesus told us to meditate on what? What did He tell us to meditate on? What were some things? Look at the birds of the air. Look at the seasons. Like, and, and we do that as a, as a means to what? To see that God took, takes care of the birds, right? God takes care of things that are far less valuable than, than we are. Uh, and they're not worried. And I, you know, so we have a bird feeder out in front of our house. And we, you know, I sometimes will sit at the window and, and meditate on what Christ said. Uh, look at the birds of the air. And then my neighbor's cats come over and I, <laughs> I get violent in my thoughts. But I, that's beside the point. So look at the, so we're, we're told to meditate. Meditating on creation is very important. Uh, William Robinson would, will enter Log College. You see a little sketch of that at the bottom of your notes. We'll talk about Log College in a minute. Uh, he will enter Log College. It was founded by William Tennant in 1727. Log College is a derisive name uh, from really those in England and others and the big name universities and seminaries that have, you know, they've got impressive structures. And here's this little log cabin. And this is where the preachers of America are going to be taught, or at least the ones of the New Light persuasion. What college would new, would, uh, what college and university will this eventually become? What? Princeton. That's right. That's right. It'll grow into Princeton University. So, so he's trained there. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. In, sketch, in the book Sketches of Virginia, the author writes that Robinson stepped into Shelton Tavern when he got into Hanover County before he preached. And the tavern keeper was a profane man and very boisterous. 
And he apparently was using profanity, which the preacher politely rebuked him. So the tavern keeper asked him, Who are you to take such authority to yourself? William Robinson replied, I am a minister of the gospel. To which the keeper responded, Then you belie your looks very much. His, his appearance had been so marred by smallpox that, it, that wherever he went, that's what people saw. So Robinson invited him to preach, and he said, Yeah, I'll come if you preach on the text I am fearfully and wonderfully made. As the account goes, he did come. Robinson did preach on that text, and the man was wonderfully converted to Christ as a result. William Robinson knew how to cast the net, uh, and God would use that to sovereignly bring about revival through his teaching. It was said of him that he had a love to God and souls as an irresistible impulse bore him on every possible infirmity and obstacle. That's what, that's what characterized a lot of the preachers we're going to be talking about and a lot of the men and women that just characterize the vein, the, the track that we're going to be uh, going down. Because as we're going to see, there is nominal Christianity and there is those that long to please the Lord. They are pious believers in the right way. His voice would be the first uh, that many in Virginia and the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina would hear uh, when it came to the gospel. In fact, when Samuel Blair preached his sermon, we'll hear about Blair in a minute, he wrote, With what importunity and vehement desire would he plead with God for the life of perishing sinners? He bore such a sense of the deplorable case of the unregenerate upon his heart and was so full of tender compassions for them that it seemed many times as if he knew not how to leave off insisting on the subject when imploring God on their account. And what a solemn, pathetic manner would he deal with them in his sermon. And so that's the ministry of William Robinson, your first note, your first uh, blanks there. It was said that he was a bright meteor blazing in the light of God wherever he went. Samuel Davies, after he died, said, Oh, he did so much in such a little time. Archibald Alexander wrote, Probably Mr. Robinson during the short period of his life was the instrument in the conversion of as many souls as any minister who ever lived in this country. Now, how long do you think his ministry lasted? About five years. Good. Did you read my notes? No. All right. All right. Is that why you're sitting up here? Yeah. About five years, five to six years. And, and I think that brings us hope, doesn't it? Some of us in here have been saved later in life, much later in life. And we go, man, I've only, I may only have five years left. I may only have ten years left. This man, in the five years that God had given him, did more according to very knowledgeable men, more than anybody else in church history, in, in our country at least, at least according to them. Uh, they saw it in that way. And I think that brings great encouragement for those who, who get saved later in life, who come to Christ later, that you can blaze like a meteor for the time remaining uh, for Christ. What a blessing. He only five to six years, and he still went to school. He used that time to go to school. He didn't just say, I don't need that. He got educated, and he used what time uh, he had wisely. Um, so just encouragement there, but it's also a charge. Maybe just some of you in here who are younger, who think, I have 50, 60, 70, 80 years left. I, I don't need to worry about life. And yet we know what? That you don't know that if you have five years left in your life either. 
We don't know how much time we have. We don't know if God is going to grant us a long life or a middle, you know, we die in middle age or, or we die young. It's all across the board. So with the time we have, and one of the things that we're going to see with these men and the women that follow uh, in their roles is that they burned brightly for the cause of Christ. They used every moment for the glory of God. He loved Christ and he loved souls. And that governed his time. That, that is how he spent his time. All right. We know in Matthew 20 that some are called early in the morning, some are called at the third hour, at the sixth hour, at the ninth hour, and at the eleventh hour. And uh, none of us can say, can complain about when God saved us uh, because it's all His grace in the first place. We can't take pride that we, that we received Christ when we were five, nor can we be discontented because we didn't receive Christ until we were 75. It is God's grace. And so for the time that we have... We want to use very well. Okay. Notice this, by the way, with Samuel Davies, who lived. Davies is going to, he's going to grieve over the fact that the first 12 years of his life were not seriously spent for the kingdom of Christ. You heard I just said, first 12 years of his life. Does anybody think seriously about the kingdom of Christ in our day and age when they are before they're 12? Not often. But, but he goes on to say as he's getting close to his death, and what I'm, I'm reading this just because I think it's no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter what you've done for Christ, the true believer is going to feel like you've done very little for Christ. That's just in the heart of the believer because Christ is so wonderful that what? What we do so little. It just seems so little. Samuel Davies, as he was preparing to die, said, Formerly I have wished to live longer, that I might be better prepared for heaven. But this consideration had very, very little weight with me, and that for a very unusual reason, which was this. After a long trial, I found this world a place so unfriendly to the growth of everything divine and heavenly. Oh, that I was afraid I should live any longer. I should be no fitted, better fitted for heaven than I am. Indeed, I have hardly any hopes of ever making men, of ever making mean attainment and wholeness while in this world though I should be doomed to stay in it as long as Methuselah. So his, his idea was is he's struggling because he has lived his whole life for Christ, and yet he finds it as if he didn't do nothing for Christ. Uh, and if he stays here long on earth, maybe he'll do a lot more. But he said this world is so unfriendly to the cause of grace uh, that, he, that that's the way it is. Now, he goes on to say after that that he wants to be holy in his, in his life. Um, hang on, guys. Sorry. Yeah. Back to our music here. Well, I know. Sorry, guys. Sorry. I told you, and my wife's not in here today. Well, it's it's there. From current slide. There we go. All right. So, so that's, the, that's the ministry of a man of some of you probably never heard of, uh, William Robinson, and yet by some of the greatest preachers and professors of our country, no man did more than, than him in many in regards. So, so use your time well. All right. Uh, the church. What's the state of the church in Virginia? We are now moving south. Jamestown was established for what purpose? What was Jamestown established? We talked about the pilgrims. We talked about the Puritans. They were established for 
primarily a specific reason. Was Jamestown the same, same reason? Economic, right? Looking for gold. They, they had other things in mind, and they weren't really set up. They didn't really come to set up a, a society in one sense. Remember we talked about the pilgrims brought families, uh, that, but Jamestown did not. And so religious freedom was not first and foremost on the minds of those who founded Virginia. Uh, it also was going to be a king's colony. It was tied very closely. And so the Anglican Church is really works very tightly with Virginia for a long time. Anglicanism is the state church of Virginia. So while we think of religious freedom in our country at this time, or at least a lot of religious freedom, in Virginia we, there really was not a lot of religious freedom. The Anglican Church had a very tight hold uh, in, from England into the state. Now, this meant that there was a cultural Christianity in Virginia. So everybody was churched. In fact, you were fined if you didn't go to church. So you had to go to church. All were required to go to the Anglican church. All were required to pay tithes to the Anglican clergy. And everyone was instructed to read the Book of Common Prayer. This was, would have gone on in England, and it just stretched to Virginia, again, which is just an extension at this point of England. Anybody in here from Virginia, by the way? Any Virginians? No. What? Right? Yeah? All right. Um, there you go. The Act of Toleration is passed in 1689, and that granted dissenters in England a certain amount of rights that they had lost. Okay? So, um, and, and so in England, this was helpful. But for some reason over in the colonies, or at least in Virginia and others, they didn't grant this same freedom to the dissenters and those that didn't go to the Church of England, for instance, Baptists, Presbyterians, uh, Congregationalists. They did not have the same rights as they might have had in England. All right? In fact, uh, let me just show you a picture here. of uh, This is the oldest church structure in England, or in uh, Virginia, pastored by the Reverend Patrick Henry, uh, who was the uncle of uh, Patrick Henry. We'll talk about it in a couple weeks. Um, he was staunchly against Samuel Davies and George Whitfield and all the guys that moved through Virginia. Um, and so he will, he will, the Anglican clergy does not like what is about to take place. Uh, they have a hold on the state. There is a blurred line between church and state. The church carries out certain functions that today we would consider civil matters. But then a proclamation is given. That, the proclamation, I think, is on your, yeah, on your notes. And this is finally, as we get closer to, we move into the time of right before Samuel Davies and, and this era, the governor, William Gooch, writes this, Whereas it is represented to me that several itinerant preachers like William Robinson have lately crept into the colony and that the suffering of these corruptors of our faith and true religion do to propagate their shocking doctrines may be of mischievous consequences. I have, therefore, thought fit by and with the advice of His Majesty's Council to issue the proclamation strictly requiring all magistrates and officers to discourage and prohibit, as far as they legally can, all itinerant preachers, whether New Light Presbyterians, Moravians, or Methodists, from teaching, preaching, or holding any meeting in this colony, and that all persons be enjoined to be aiding and assisting in that purpose." Given under my hand at Williamsburg this day of April 1747 and in the 20th year of His Majesty's reign, William Gooch, God save the King. So if you sought 
to worship outside the Anglican church, you are going to be facing trouble. Okay? That's, and again, this is what was happening in England. No surprise in one sense, except that freedom, religious freedom is beginning to boil in the colonies. That's going to be something that is going to come up uh, in, in the near future. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Stop me, yeah. So, so how was that enforced? Like law enforcement would actually get involved? In yeah, that? yeah, yeah. And they worked with the clergy. You know, they were working together. Uh, and so it would, uh, the civil law would, civil authorities would come in and arrest and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's the, that's the, some of the struggles that Massachusetts was having and Virginia. And although Massachusetts was not a, an Anglican colony, it was still implementing some of those practices for a while. And so what you have then is what? You have church, the church persecuting church members. I mean, that's what it boils down to. So it's, a, it's a bad situation, yeah. So, like J.C. Ryle and John Stott, yeah. they're of the same Anglican uh-huh. Yeah, correct? yeah. They would have disagreed with that. I mean, the Anglicans were great. I mean, the early Anglicans, Thomas Cranmer, uh, you know, some of the other guys, Thomas Bilney, uh, these guys that came up at, that during the Reformation that separated uh, were, were some of the bravest, most courageous, godly men that the church has ever produced. Um, the 39 Articles of Anglicanism is a very strong, good, for the most part, document, church document. The Anglicans stopped holding to their document, which is what the problem is. But over time, when it became the state church, uh, then it, it had the authority like Rome did. It, it basically, Elizabeth came in and didn't want to completely break away from Rome. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people liked the practices in Rome, so they retained that and yet had Calvinistic doctrine. And so the Church of England is a mixture of really Rome and then Protestantism. And so with them not pulling all the way out, it, it's, I think Ryle even said it left nest eggs for Rome to hatch back in the church is kind of what happened. So, but nevertheless, a lot of the Puritans were Anglicans. They stayed in the church. Anglicanism itself is not bad. Uh, we don't agree with every single doctrine, um, but it is what it became. And so, uh, and he, and so, yeah. When they started forcing rules, you have to read the Book of Common Prayer. Was the Book of Common Prayer a good document? Yeah, yeah. It's a great document. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to buy one and read it for some of your devotions. It is a beautiful, beautifully written by Thomas Cranmer. There's a lot in there. The old one, yes. The old one, please, yeah. Um, but it, it's a great tool. But all of a sudden, when you're forced to read a non-inspired document in your church services every week, now we've got a problem. That, that's where the Puritans began to get, among many other things. So, um, yeah. What's the name of that church? Slash, yeah, Slash Church. Slash Church... So a slash back in the 18th century was a, a swamp in the forest. So it was, that's what it was called slash. It was, it was called the Upper Church of St. Paul's Parish, but it has been for the last couple hundred years slash church. So, yeah. So I didn't know what that was either. It sounded like a modern, like, you know, I was like, what? Who's taking this church over? This sounds like a non-denominational thing. And it wasn't. What? Right, yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's what I kind of imagine in here. Do you see the... I, I, I guess the Canterbury, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, the Canterbury Cathedral, uh, they had this big rave concert in there this week, and they were just commenting on how ridiculous it just looked in this grand cathedral, and that's what I would kind of think about that. But anyways, 
So that's the, that's the established church. But also, what happens when you have an established church? What usually happens to the moral climate within that church? Does it get on fire for Christ? Not usually. And that's not what happened here. In fact, if you were to go into Virginia at this point, you had a very cultural Christianity that was very dead in many ways. Dewey Roberts, who wrote an excellent biography on Samuel Davies, wrote that while the formalities of Christianity were interspersed throughout the common life of the people, too often they did not penetrate the heart. Virginians would pray before their meals. They were taught to read from the pages of the Bible. They learned the catechism of the Anglican Church, and they were required by law to attend the parish church once in every four weeks. And so what you had here was a very churched society that was dead. And that's, a, that's part of the problem. That's why everybody talked about God back then. When you read the literature, lots of people talk about God. Uh, that was part of their life. Uh, of course they believed in Jesus. Of course they believed in these things. But it didn't impact their heart. That was the, the problem. That's what, that's what happens over time in a church. I would say not even a state church. It could happen at Grace Community Church. After 50 years, what happens? You start to settle. The, the, you know, the congregation's been here for a long time. Pretty soon, conversion isn't preached as, as strongly. You, you're born into this church, and you just feel you're okay because you hear good preaching. You, you practice the sacraments or ordinances uh, correctly. You do church discipline. We're okay, right? We're okay. We go to good church. We've got good preaching, and nobody's being converted. It happened anywhere, and it happened in Virginia over time. Uh, so we have a cultural Christianity, a mere external observance and superficial morality. Samuel Miller, who was a professor at Princeton, said the established clergy were notor- notoriously profligate in their lives, and very few among them preached or appeared to understand the gospel of Christ. It's important to understand the, the climate that Samuel Davies is going to come into. That's why I want to set this tone The clergy would often spend their time with the aristocracy in frivolity. Aristocracy had much time to waste. Um, By the way, the Anglican Church, one of the things that the Anglican Church, why they retained slavery for so long was their whole system was set up in that way, even in England. So they had a hierarchy that allowed allowed for people to do their work for them, Uh, whether that was white or black. It didn't matter. It was that system was set up which made it very easy to incorporate slavery into their, their system. So more on that probably in part three. Uh, but they would spend much of their time with the aristocracy. Clergy would waste their time as well. Colonial clergy were called to refuse, were called the refuse of the English, Irish, Scottish Episcopal churches who could not get jobs there, so they came to the colonies. Accusations of immorality, drunkenness, and arrogance. In fact, two Dutch missionaries were grieved at the levity with which the clergy approached life. They did not have serious conversations about God, Christ, heaven, or hell. So you kind of get the climate here. There's a, there's a nothing serious, nothing serious. It's the clergy now have just assimilated into life, and, and now we're just existing. We go to church. It's cultural. We go to church on Sunday. You know, we're going to pray before we eat, but it, there's no heart change. And the clergy are lost themselves which is going to set the stage for the controversy we're going to talk about in a minute. They were lax in their Lord's Day. Um, that was one of the things that, that he mentioned as he went into Virginia. And this is what happened with Anglicanism in general, is that King James, remember, when we talked about in part one, wrote the book of sports. Why? 
because the Puritans didn't want to play sports on Sunday. And King James knew that was a way to weaken the church by introducing the book of sports, and he made them read that book in the services. He had to, they had to read them. Now, I remember I, we talked about the one preacher that dismissed his congregation, and he said he told us we had to read it, but he didn't have to say anybody had to be here. So he waited till his congregation left and read the book of sports to an empty congregation. So, um, so that was, I mean, this is what we're dealing with here. And in, in Virginia, there was no desire to, to, Sunday was like any other day. It had become that way. Which, if you read Richard Baxter, listen to this quote, it is also confessed that the universal church from the days of the apostles down till now hath constantly kept holy the Lord's day in the memorial of Christ's resurrection, and that by as the will of Christ delivered to them by or from the apostles, insomuch that I remember not either any Orthodox Christian or heretic that ever opposed, questioned, or scrupled it till of late ages. And as a historical discovery of the matter of fact, this is a good evidence that indeed it was settled by the apostles and consequently by Christ who gave them their commission and inspired them by the Holy Ghost. And one of the things we're going to see throughout American history and throughout all of church history is there is a seriousness to the worship of Christ on the Lord's Day. That was not compromised. It didn't matter if you were Sabbatarian or not. Sunday was the day you worshiped Christ. Uh, and that's across Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, you know, Methodist, you, you name it. And that's what Baxter is saying. There is nobody in church history that would have held a different view of Sunday being the day to set aside to worship. Okay, so... So just, again, as we look in, as we, as we start to talk about the piety of these men, it's going to stand in stark contrast to the worldliness of the Anglican ministers. Okay? All right. Keep moving here. How far? Okay, good. We're doing good. Uh, so all of this is leading to spiritual decay. And Dewey Roberts writes, Formalism and legalism invariably lead to loose morals and low spiritual standards. And that's what happened. In fact, Whitfield, when he came through Virginia, said that it was more dead to God, but far less prejudiced as those in the northern parts of the country. So as he comes through Virginia, he sees that the, it's just worldly. They, they claim to be Christians, but there's no life in them. And then they, what happens? They become hostile to piety. See, a nominal Christian hates a godly Christian because it ruins their life. It ruins their lukewarmness. Samuel Davies wrote this, How common, how fashionable is this lukewarm religion? This is the prevailing epidemical sin of our age and country. We have thousands of Christians, but alas, they are of the Laodicean stamp. They are neither cold nor hot. But it is our first concern to know how it is with ourselves. Therefore, let this inquiry go round this congregation. Are you not such lukewarm Christians? Is there any fire and life in your devotions? Or are not all your active powers engrossed by other pursuits? So what we're going to see is, as, they, as these revivals and awakenings and just these things go on is life changes from frivolity to seriousness. Now, not miserableness. In fact, a greater joy. Uh, a greater joy. Well, so that's the, that's the climate. But then we get to... A few men who have decided they're, they're not going to the Anglican church. They, they got a hold of Luther's commentary on the Galatians, which has been the means of saving many people. If you don't have Luther's commentary on Galatians, you need to 
Get on Amazon right now and you need to buy it. Uh, because so many people in church history have been have come to Christ through reading that his commentary. Um, they get a hold of it. This is Samuel Morris. He's a brick, a brick mason. And uh, he's also an officer at St. Paul's, where, where Patrick Henry, the Reverend Patrick Henry, is the minister. And he begins reading and begins understanding that he is not hearing any of this in the pulpit at his church. No gospel. And his heart is what? It's convicted. He realizes that he needs, he puts his faith and trust in Christ. He comes to saving faith. And now he is, he is on fire, as we say, on fire for the Lord. Uh, he drops out of church, decides to take his family. They're going to start reading the Bible at home. They're going to pray. They're going to do all the things at home because now he can teach them the gospel through reading sermons and through reading books. And I got, you know, when you think about your own life, I don't know about you, but there was a time where I was not sitting under a pastor that was preaching. He wasn't preaching heresy. He just wasn't preaching in a way where I was benefiting and growing in Christ. I was left Sunday after Sunday with a kind of lacking. And, and then, you, then you come across men in our day and age on the radio or, or men that are faithfully preaching and they become, you're like, wow, this is, what is this? This is like real, this is preaching. And it impacts you. I kind of look, this is kind of what was going on. The preachers of the day were not preaching truth. They were not preaching the gospel. They were not preaching the doctrines of grace. They were worldly men themselves. And then, and then a brick mason gets a hold of, um, of Whitfield's sermons and Luther's commentary on Galatians. And so he refuses to attend the Anglican services. He's impacted. By the way, your next blank is the Morris reading rooms. He's impacted by reading Luther's commentary to the Galatians. He builds reading rooms. And so if you go to Hanover County right now, um, that, here, I'll just... there's what's called the historic Pole Green Church, which I will talk about more next week. Uh, this reading room is actually on Samuel Morris's property. They built it the exact size of what these reading, this reading room was, but they built them open. In fact, if you were at the historic Pole Green Church... Uh, you can't really see it. I'll get, do a better picture next week. But this is the exact foundation of where Samuel Davies preached to Patrick Henry, the Patrick Henry, and others as they were growing up. And so uh, it's really a cool place. It's on the Revolution Trail if you ever get to Virginia. But, but Samuel Morris began, uh, his house got too small. He begins to build these reading rooms. And he starts reading the Puritans. He starts reading messages and sermons from George Whitfield. He reads Luther and Calvin, and all of a sudden, people start flocking to these reading rooms. He has to build more and more, and uh, they, they outgrow him. Uh, and, and why? Because Scripture, they, they longed to, see, to be fed by the Word of God. Um, John White, John Hunt, and Roger Watkins were the other three that stopped attending, and they were brought before the authorities, and... They were going to be fined. They were going to be charged as criminals for not going to the Anglican church and meeting together uh, in this way. However, they did go before the governor, and the governor, one of them was given the Scottish Presbyterian uh, statement of faith, and for some reason that satisfied the governor and said, you guys are Presbyterians, and that's fine. For whatever reason, they, he just let it go, and, and uh, they, were, they were, in a sense, okay for the time being. So that was, that's the reading rooms. And God begins to do a work 
in the people of the church that now love Scripture and want to be fed. So this is all happening before Samuel Davies gets there. So there's this undercurrent of people. They pray. They fervently pray. God is working. Um, where's this quote here? Uh, let's see here. So is this before the guy you were talking about who was kind of marred by this? Well, it was during that time. So during that time, yeah, it, he, it was going on. In fact, William Robinson did preach at the Pole Green Church as well. So these things are going on during that time. But this is all within three or four years of, of each other. Are we talking 1750s? 1740s, I believe. 1740s, early 50s, yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this church, by the way, was destroyed in the Civil War. Uh, the, the Union troops came in and blasted it to smithereens and, and uh, caught on fire and burned everything. But, but one of the Union um, generals sat in the church and sketched it all out. And, and so we actually have pictures of what the inside looked like. when. Uh, so they had a, a balcony for the slaves, too. If, one of the things we'll talk about Samuel Davies, he wanted everybody to hear the gospel. Um, and so the slaves were welcomed in. There was different, you know, as all the old churches were back then, there were... You know, you sat in different places, but I actually have pictures of the uh, of the sketchings of it, and it's pretty fascinating. Anyways, um, so he talks about as far as the reading room goes. Says James Hunt, who attended the reading room, writes the following account: Curiosity prompted the desire to be among them. One and another begged for admission till their houses on Sabbath were crowded, and here a new scene opened up on their view. Numbers were pierced to the heart. The word became sharp and powerful. What shall we do was the general cry. Witnesses said that men began to cry out, What must we do to be saved? Now we talked about this in part one. This is what happened in Acts when the Spirit is actually moving. The hearts of men are convicted and they cry out. There, there's no other hope. What, what do I do? How can I be saved? I need to be saved. What must I do? That was happening in these reading rooms. Just by reading George Whitfield, Just by reading uh, Martin Luther. So... Guys, read good material. Uh, it is impactful, and it can have a great impact on one's spiritual well-being. Yeah. Is a reading room like this, somebody get up and read the word, and there's other people listening? Yeah, that's exactly it. You just, I'd, you know, I'd be standing right here and just reading a book, and, and everybody's coming in. But the, because they've not heard the message before, uh, it's all of a sudden there's hope, there's life, there's I can know Christ, I can have a personal walk with Christ. I don't have to go through the Anglican church that is, you know, now has so many obstacles of keeping people from Christ uh, in one sense that, that there, there's life. And there's freedom, as we'll talk about. Religious freedom is going to begin to build off of this. Is Episcopal and Anglican the same? Thing? Yeah, so during the Revolution, the Americans didn't want the name Anglican anymore. So if you were Episcopal, if you're Anglican, you're like, we don't want that name because it's from England. So they call themselves Episcopalian. So it's just American Anglican, uh, yeah. Um, so that's going on, but now at this time, there's controversy that's been brewing for about a decade. It's called the old light, new light controversy. So some of you should know this. Uh, what was the old light, new light controversy? Old light, new light. What were the marks of revival? Okay. That, that was part of it. That was part of it. So how they even looked at revival, right? So traditional. They thought the new light was too much of an emotion. Correct, correct. 
So old lights consider their, they, they thought they were the traditional, you know, they would go back to what they would call the Puritans, although they were wrong. Uh, the Puritans did not believe what they believed. But here's some of the differences. And, and a lot of it based, was based on regeneration. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So hang on. New lights uh, believed that the old light pastors were not even believers. This is going to, as you can imagine, uh, this is going to cause a lot of problems. Because what's going to happen? They're going to start going into the old light churches and preaching. Uh, and they're going to start calling them unbelievers. Um, that would cause problems, you can see. Uh, the new lights combined objective grace with subjective grace. What do I mean by that? Objective grace, subjective grace. Objective grace is the old lights believed all the essential doctrines of the faith. They believed the confessions. They believed, you know, on paper, these things. They didn't have the inward work of the Spirit that was making them holy. They weren't growing in the experiential knowledge of Christ. They were satisfied with just believing on paper the Trinity. We're hearing about the Trinity today. Did you, you came into church. Did it have any impact on your experiential walk with Christ? Or do you walk out of here just going, oh, that's yeah, the Trinity, I understand that. See, we can fall into that where the, the, what is truth is not impacting our hearts. And that, that was the old lights. That's what the new lights were saying about the old lights. Um, the work of Christ for me and work of Spirit in me is what they believed. So, so there was a Christ did the work, but the Spirit was working through them. They, stri- they embraced the revivals correctly. Again, there are bad revivals, and we'll talk about that later. They stress personal conversion. Again, what happens in a state church? You stop stressing personal conversion, right? And pretty soon you just go about the motion. They stressed you must be born again. The old lights, on the other hand, they adhered to the Westminster Confession. They believed in objective grace, but not subjective grace. They condemned all emotionalism, were suspicious of revivals, promoted enlightenment ideals, as we're going to see that's going to lead to bad doctrine, and they accused the new lights of being antinomian. What is antinomian? Against the law, right? That they didn't, they, they, you know, they weren't moral in one sense, which was, which was ridiculous. Um, so the old light Presbyterians or Baptists or Congregationalists did not even require regeneration as necessary to pastor a church. So how important is regeneration? First off, what is regeneration? What is regeneration? Work of the Holy Spirit. That's right. To, to what? To cause us to be born again, right? To, to awaken us from our sin. We are dead in our sin. The Spirit makes us alive, right? That's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That is now the Holy Spirit lives in me and is working through me, okay? Uh, if you are not regenerated, you are not a believer. So, now when does regeneration happen? Steve? What does the Bible say, Steve? There you go. Regeneration happens before we believe, right? We are dead in our sins. And so what happens is the Spirit, what? Regenerates our heart. He makes us alive. He causes us to be born again. And what? We put our faith and trust in Christ and believe the gospel. Well, what the old lights were saying is regeneration is not necessary to be really to be a believer. Um, 
And so it was, it was beginning to extinguish the light of the church. Um, Archibald Alexander said that under such a state of things, it's easy to conceive that in a short time, vital piety may have almost deserted the church and the, that formality and dead orthodoxy have been all that was left of religion. You realize that that can happen here at Grace. We can be reduced to dead orthodoxy and just a cold formalism. If we are not being renewed, if we are not experientially walking with Christ, experientially meaning from the Word of God, that experience comes directly from the written Word, not your experience of what you think is happening, not what's happening at charismatic churches down the road, what they consider experience, but we ought to have an experiential walk with Christ. And once that dies, you have dead formalism. Go to a lot of these churches around here, they sing the same songs, even these ones with female pastors and all that is wrong with these churches, they sing these old hymns. They even play the organ. They even do all these things. And they're, and, but they don't, there's no experiential walk with Christ because they don't even believe the gospel anymore. All right, so we got to be careful. we got to take cold. All right, last, we have the Log College. And this is going to be now very important in setting up next week, the Log College. William Tennant left Ireland. Hang on, guys. Uh, let me go. I'll go there in a minute. William Tennant left Ireland. Uh, he was in the Episcopal Church there in Ireland. And because they continually were drifting towards Arminianism, he left. He left Dublin and he came to America. He had three sons, Gilbert, Tennant, and William, and John, who uh, were all preachers. Uh, and they settled in the New Jersey, Pennsylvania area. Well, William Tennant Sr. started what was called the Log College, and that was to train new light ministers. Because what was happening? The old light presbyteries were kicking out new light ministers. They didn't want new lights in. And this is dividing much of the church and the colonies uh, in, as, in the time that we're looking at. We don't want new light ministers. And so, uh, something had to be started, and that was the Log College. Uh, by the way, that is a real sketch on your, on your if you can even see it, uh, on your notes. That was an actual sketch that was found in San Francisco. Two guys found each other uh, that, whose parents went to the, either college or had some connection, and they were able to, and he had that in his Bible, and it was actually the Log College that, of, um, that they started. Kind of fascinating. Anyways, Tennant, Gilbert Tennant was a stirring, enthusiastic preacher, and his sermons led many to experience conversion. Very important. Some men accomplished more. And Listen to this, guys. All right, This is by Archibald Alexander, and it's so true. And it's when you look at Grace Community Church or any other church that's training men, it becomes important. Some men accomplish more by those whom they educate than by their personal labors. If they are so favored as to be the means of bringing forward a few pious youth, and preparing them for the ministry, they may do more good than if their whole lives have been spent in doing nothing else than preaching the gospel. There's going to be some of us that are going to do more for the kingdom by training other people who are more impactful than we are. But we become impactful by training and being faithful and training those men. And so when you look at our classes at church, I hope, I hope that you see in that, that's the desire. We want to train men to go out or to work in the church or to be faithful and we hope that that will, will do that. Nothing is perfect, but that is the desire. Well, Whitfield comes by this cabin. Listen to his description of it. He says, It's the place wherein the young man 
Young Men's Study Now is in contempt called the college. That's a, again, it's a mocking name. Uh, it is a log house about 20 feet long and near as many broad. And to me, it seemed to resemble the schools of the old prophets. That's a pretty powerful picture because if you read the old prophets in the, in the Old Testament, you will see the work that's being done. What he's saying here is the training that was going on, the work that is going to come out of this, the preaching that's going to come out of this is going to stir hearts. It's going to stir the nation. They are powerfully preaching the written word of God. This is like the school of the prophets, not Old Testament prophets. Okay? We're not talking about that. They are foretellers of the word. Uh, they, they speak forth the word of God. They are heralds for the word of God. And to me, you see, from this despised place, worthy ministers of Jesus have lately been set forth. More are almost ready to be sent, and foundation is now laying for the instruction of many others. The devil will certainly rage against them, but the work I am persuaded is of God, and therefore will not come to naught. Well, I'm going to end there because I have more, and but this is going to set us up for next week uh, just fine. But what I, I wanted to set that background. Uh, we need to understand the times in which Samuel Davies lived. We need to understand that he's going to come out of this school of prophets. Another one uh, that is going to be set up, another log cabin um, called, unfortunately, Fag's Manor. That was the name, the guy's name. So uh, I'm only going to say that probably once. Um, but the manner at which he went to, went to uh, be trained in was, was another log cabin. And they begin training new light preachers. And this is going to set, really, Virginia and, and other places on fire through the preaching of God's Word. Okay? So let me pray, and we'll be back next week. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for uh, just this example. Thank You for these men. Thank You that Your Word has been preserved. Thank You for the works that You have done to, to preserve it, even in our own country. Lord, we recognize that theological controversies are, are necessary. It is necessary to fight theological battles, but we do that in, in grace and in truth. Even as we hear about the Trinity, I pray that we would be committed to these doctrines and we will see that to not hold on to these is to give up sound orthodoxy. I just pray that as we, as we see the piety of those in these accounts, Godly men and women who once they were touched by the Word of God, once the Spirit worked through them, the godliness that, that came out, the godliness that was lived in society, Lord, I pray that we would take note of that. pray that we would examine our own hearts in light of that. I pray that we would long for a work coming through Your preached Word. And I pray that our church would be changed. I pray that our community would be changed. I pray that our country would be changed and, and the world for your great name's sake. But even if it doesn't, even if it's not in your sovereign plan to do these things again, I pray that we would be faithful, that we would live accordingly, that we would live in a way that would be pleasing to you. And uh, we thank you that we get to hear the word each and every day, and, and especially on Sundays. I pray that we would live it out, and I pray that we would glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.